Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm Camille Landais from the Economics Department here at the London School of Economics. And this is my great uh, pleasure to welcome tonight uh, my uh, ex-colleague, uh, but still friend, uh, <laughs> Gabriel Zuckman. Uh, so before I uh, go on and introduce Gabriel a little bit more for uh, those of you who don't necessarily know him uh, as well as I do, uh, I just want to start with some few uh, housekeeping notes. So this event is organized by the uh, Economics Department and the Center for uh, Macro at the uh, LSE. And uh, tonight the uh, lecture is going to be recorded. Uh, hopefully we're going to have a postcast uh, as well. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of you are going to want to share on social media all the interesting stuff that uh, Gabriel is going to share with us. So there is an hashtag for tonight's event. It's uh, LSE Wealth. So please use it uh, when you're on social media, tweeting or Instagramming nice pics with, uh, with Gabriel. Uh, just to give you a, a brief sense of how the event is going to be organized, uh, so we're going to start with Gabriel lecturing for about 30 to 40 minutes. Then there's going to be a, a Q&A. Uh, we hope that basically the lecture plus the Q&A uh, will bring us towards like 7.45, something like this. And then there's going to be a book selling and a book signing. Uh, so this is going to take place roughly around uh, 7.40 to, to 8. But we need to somehow leave the premises around uh, 8 to 8.15. Okay? So that's pretty much it in terms of, uh, of uh, housekeeping. So let me maybe say a few words uh, to, uh, to introduce uh, Gabriel. Uh, so Gabriel did his, his PhD in, in Paris School of Economics. This is actually where, uh, where I, I, I met him. Uh, it turns out he did his PhD with a, a, a guy that a few of you might have heard of, Thomas Piketty. What's his last name again? Piketty, I guess. Yeah, uh, that's it. So uh, from uh, there, he actually started as a, a lecturer here at the London School of Economics, and he's now an assistant professor uh, in Berkeley, uh, in University of California, Berkeley. He's very young, uh, but still in his very uh, brief uh, but active and successful early career, he's managed to uh, somehow revolutionize uh, the analysis of wealth and inequality. Uh, in particular, he has produced absolutely groundbreaking uh, uh, work on tax evasion and the role of tax havens uh, in tax evasion the fruits of which uh, basically collected into a book, first published in French, uh, but that has been translated in English, called The Hidden Wealth of Nation, that is being sold outside and that you're going to have a, a chance to, uh, to get signed by, by him tonight. Uh, but he didn't stop there. Uh, he really continued uh, producing really interesting new analysis on the role of, of wealth over the path of development, over the long time of history, uh, some of which with Thomas, some of which with Emmanuel Saez. Uh, they've, uh, for instance, actually showed with uh, very great details for the very first time how much actually wealth inequality had also increased in the uh, United States. So all this work, is, uh, it's, it's very new, it's very groundbreaking, uh, it is expanding very fast, 
Uh, and I think it's also fair to say that uh, Gabriel is working with a very active team. Uh, so we think, of course, about uh, Thomas Piketty. We think about Emmanuel says. I would also want to uh, some, I mean, remind you of maybe the, 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 the fatherly figure uh, of, of both uh, Emmanuel and, and Thomas, Tony Atkinson, uh, also a professor here at the London School of Economics. We sincerely hope that uh, this team is going to continue uh, doing this great work, uh, but uh, please uh, add me and, and welcome with a round of applause, Gabrielle, uh, tonight. Well, um, thank you very much, uh, Camille. Thanks to uh, all of you for being here tonight. Um, so I'd like to talk about uh, this book, The Hidden Wealth of Nations. Um, what I try to do uh, in this book is to, to address two sets of questions. So one is a positive question about how big uh, the wealth in tax havens is, and the other is a, a set of normative questions about what can be done to better fight uh, tax evasion and to improve financial transparency and to better measure wealth inequality and to uh, design policies uh, uh, that could uh, help uh, reduce the increase in uh, wealth concentration. Um, so these are very controversial issues, and I should stress at the, at the beginning that uh, I, I don't have uh, definitive answers to, to any of those questions, neither the positive uh, question of uh, how big tax evasion is, nor the normative question of what should be done uh, to better uh, curb it. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty, and so people have all sorts of beliefs about these issues. So for some observers, there are considerable revenue losses in, uh, in offshore tax havens. There's a, a tremendous amount of wealth that's hidden there, and if we could tax this wealth appropriately, then we could solve basically all of the world's problems. For other people, you have the opposite polar view, and I'm just you know, caricaturing a little bit. The opposite, the polar view, is that there's nothing really going on in tax havens, at least nothing that's illegal or that's not legitimate, and so, uh, in particular, there are, there's nothing that can be done to improve tax revenue. On both sides of this debate, there's actually very little empirical evidence because, of course, it's very hard to uh, uh, measure and to understand the type of activity that takes place in, in those uh, 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 countries that are sometimes called secrecy uh, jurisdictions or tax havens. And so that one thing I tried to do is just to, to bring some statistics, some hard figures in this debate. Um, I'll get back to it. I find that there's about 8% of the world's household financial wealth that's held offshore uh, globally. So that's more than 8 trillion US dollars today. Uh, that's a global average that conceals a lot of heterogeneity across countries. So for some economies, it's much more than 8% of their financial wealth that they have offshore. Think about African countries, about Latin America. This can be as high as 20 or 30%, or even 50%, as in the case of Russia. I'll come back to this. Uh, and the second thing is, is, more, uh, is the normative aspect. So, let me start with the fact that there's been quite a lot that's been tried over the recent years uh, and even decades to uh, better fight tax evasion. 
Since the financial crisis, there's been some actual progress, limited uh, but real progress. Um, there is a, a U.S. law known as FATCA, the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, that's in the process of being generalized to the whole world. And this uh, uh, law and, and the common uh, reporting standard at the global level that follows this law uh, is making it possible for the first time for tax authorities in the UK, in Germany, in the US to receive information from tax havens such as Switzerland, the Cayman Islands, and so on. So there's going to be, and there's already uh, in the case of the U.S., an automatic exchange of bank information. So that, that's a big change compared to uh, what was the case 10 years ago when uh, there was absolutely no exchange of information between tax haven countries and uh, foreign tax authorities. Uh, at the same time, there is some attempt at uh, limiting the extent of uh, 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 profit shifting by multinational companies to uh, offshore tax havens. So, you know, this is a, another phenomenon that I'll talk a little bit about. Multinational companies today uh, book a considerable fraction of their profits in places like Bermuda. Uh, in 2014, Google, for instance, made more than $10 billion dollars, or so it claimed, in profits in Bermuda, uh, where the corporate income tax rate is 0%, and where, of course, you know, no sales and no real activity takes place. There's an attempt uh, called base erosion and profit shifting, or BEPS in short, to address that uh, specific problem. So one question is, what can we expect from those policies? Uh, is, that, is it the end of tax havens? Is it the end of tax evasion? Or uh, multinational companies finally start to pay the taxes that they have to pay? Or, uh, or, or, or not? Or, or, uh, or, or is tax evasion going to, to, to continue and, and maybe these policies have uh, major uh, loopholes? Uh, my position is, is, is a bit of a, of a middle ground. Uh, I, I think these represent real progress, but I also think that much more should be done to uh, address uh, tax evasion and tax avoidance. And in particular, the main proposal in this book, and, and uh, I hope we can talk about that uh, in particular during the uh, Q&A, is uh, the idea that we should create a world financial registry that would do for financial assets, uh, equities, bonds, mutual fund shares, the same thing uh, as the current land and real estate registries do, which is record who owns the, world, uh, the world's wealth. And I'll explain why it would be relatively easy to create such financial registries, because actually those registries already exist. They are managed by private financial institutions. They are not used for the public good. They could be used for the public good. And I'll try to explain how this could be done. Um, so this is a, work that, a book that's based on, on, on some research that I did, uh, uh, part of it in collaboration with Niels Johansen at the University of Copenhagen. I also talk today about more recent uh, research, which is not in the book. So that's ongoing work on tax evasion and inequality with uh, Nils Johansen and Annette Altatzater. 
that uses new data, data that has become available very recently from leaks, in particular the Panama Papers, from uh, amnesties. You know that a number of countries after the financial crisis have had amnesty programs where they say to tax evaders, you can disclose uh, wealth that you used to hide and you know we won't send you to jail, you'll have to pay some penalties but at a somewhat reduced rate in some cases. And so we use this data to, uh, for the first time, investigate uh, who actually engages in tax evasion, who does you know, tax evasion, and in particular, how the prevalence of tax evasion varies across the wealth distribution. So there are two main topics in this, uh, uh, in this, in this presentation, two main things that I'd like to discuss with you. Uh, the first thing is uh, tax evasion by wealthy individuals, so things that clearly are not legal and that basically involve hiding wealth and income uh, through unreported foreign bank accounts. And the other thing that I'll talk about is uh, the artificial uh, shifting of profits by multinational companies to tax haven countries, so tax avoidance by multinational companies. So sometimes people you know, make a very strong distinction between tax avoidance and tax evasion, and I'm going to follow this uh, uh, way of doing things even though the frontier between what is legal and illegal in the case of multinational companies is, far, is in many cases far from clear. Uh, you know, you keep hearing um, big multinational firms like Apple, for instance, that say, you know, all we do is perfectly legal. Well, until the time when the European Commission, for instance, finds that this is not and that they have to pay very big fines for uh, the uh, tax dodging that they've been uh, doing. But in any case, that's, that's uh, the roadmap basically for this uh, presentation. So starting with tax evasion by uh, wealthy individuals in offshore tax havens. Let me show you first this graph. That, that is a nice way to summarize the uh, very rapid growth of the wealth that's being managed in uh, offshore tax havens. Um, that's a graph that makes a simple computation. That it computes a simple ratio it's the ratio between, the, uh, at the numerator, the, the value of all U.S. equities that are owned by firms or individuals uh, located in tax havens, in Switzerland, in uh, the Cayman Islands, in Luxembourg, and similar places. And the denominator is just the total market value of all U.S. equities. So what this graph shows is that there's about 10% of all U.S. equities today that belong to uh, tax haven firms and individuals, and that this fraction is growing very rapidly. The, the first data point for 1941 corresponds to the first survey conducted by the U.S. Treasury on the foreign ownership of U.S. equities during World War II, and already at the time, about 1% of U.S. Uh, equities belong to holding companies in Panama in particular. But that was only 1%. Then this grew a little bit. The second survey is a second modern survey because 
some, some uh, earlier surveys were conducted in the 19th uh, century. The second modern survey took place in 1974, and at that time, again, about 2% of all U.S. equities belong to tax havens. And then since 1984, this survey is annual, and we can see the, the gradual and spectacular increase in the fraction of U.S. equities held by tax havens uh, from the 1980s to this day, and this is still, this is still rising uh, very fast today. So what does this mean? So, so anybody who looks at international investment statistics can only be struck by how big these uh, 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 stocks of wealth uh, assigned to tax haven countries and these flows of billions of dollars that flow in and out of the Cayman Islands, how big these are. And certainly that's, that's by the way, how I started working on this. You know, during the financial crisis, uh, when I started my PhD in 2009, I, I just wanted to understand a little bit what was going on. And when you look at data uh, from the U.S. Treasury, from the Bank for International Settlements, and I'll discuss that in, in a second, uh, from international organizations in general, it's very striking to see these tiny countries uh, with hundreds of billions of dollars flowing in and out. And so one question is, what does this correspond to? Uh, what is legal and not legal? What, what, what concretely does this, uh, does this mean? And the truth is that there are lots of uh, activities that take place in tax havens, some of which are legal and legitimate, or, or at least uh, legal, uh, and some of which are, are not. Uh, so one type of activity is that lots of investment funds are incorporated in uh, places like Luxembourg, like Ireland, like the Cayman Islands. So Luxembourg, for instance, is the second biggest country in the world in terms of the number of uh, investment funds that are incorporated there, uh, just after the US. Most of the world's hedge funds are incorporated in the Cayman Islands, okay? And so all the US equities that these funds own, they will show up in that, in that picture. So that's one thing. There are lots of other things, for instance, lots of the, uh, the securitization, the transformation of US mortgages into bonds that took place before <coughs> Uh, the financial crisis of 2008 took place uh, in the Cayman Islands, you know, through uh, subsidiaries uh, of, of U.S. banks that they had located there because there was very little regulation uh, in particular. There are lots of treasury management operations, which means that in particular U.S. firms, they shift their, their cash overnight to their subsidiaries in the Cayman Islands because historically, at least, the interest rate that they could get was a bit higher than in the U.S., and there's, you know, the personal wealth management activities of tax havens, uh, which, is, uh, which I'm going to focus on uh, now. And uh, these uh, personal wealth management activities is pretty simple. It's uh, basically uh, banks that cater to very rich individuals from all over the world and that sell them a bunch of services, investment services, investment advice, tax planning, and also some of them uh, the possibility to evade taxes, so that sell tax evasion services. And you know, a number of these banks have been in recent years convicted, uh, found guilty of you know, criminal conspiracies to defraud the, the IRS and other tax authorities. So that's something that they do, that they should not be doing, but that they do. Um, so how does that work? How does tax evasion work? So 
let me try to be very uh, concrete. So, so don't do it, but I, I'll try to, to give a, a very uh, 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 you know, precise example. So imagine uh, a U.S. businessman, okay, who, who owns his company, and he wants to evade taxes. So one, one first step is to create a shell company. A shell company. Uh, this can be done very easily in the U.S., in, in, in Delaware, for instance, or Nevada. This can be done very easily in the British Virgin Islands where hundreds of thousands of shell companies are incorporated or in Panama. Um, and uh, the point of doing this is that the shell company um, has no easily identifiable owner. So I create a shell company. Nobody knows that I'm the actual owner of the shell company. So that's step number one. Step number two, this shell company is going to create some uh, fake invoices. So I'm going to pretend, for instance, that I'm buying management advice or some type of advice from this shell company that, that I control. And so this creates a paper trail which, on, which seems legitimate at first glance and in some cases actually is legitimate, but, it, but in, which in many cases is actually conducive of tax evasion. So there's a paper trail. I, as a business owner, buy fake management, uh, management advice from this shell company that nobody knows that I, I actually own it. And then in payment for those services, what I do is that I'm going to send funds to this shell company. The shell company, I forgot to mention, uh, opens a bank account in Switzerland, say. In Switzerland, as I'll show in a moment, about 60%, closer to 70% today, of all the wealth managed by Swiss banks belongs to shell companies, uh, in, in particular and primarily to shell companies incorporated in the British Virgin Islands and in Panama, which are the two uh, biggest uh, countries for the incorporation of shell companies. And so I wire funds to this, shell, to the, this Swiss account of the shell company, and once the money has arrived in Switzerland, it can be invested on global markets, so uh, you know, I can buy uh, mutual funds, many of which, as I already said, are incorporated in Luxembourg. So the Luxembourg mutual funds, in effect, one of their prime activities is just to recycle the, 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 the money that evades taxes. I can buy German bonds or French equities. These investments generate income, dividends, interest, capital gains, and that income can only be taxed if either I, I report it to the tax authority, so in, in the example that I'm describing to the, the US tax authority, the IRS, or if the Swiss bank or someone else tells the IRS, oh yes, I have this client who has this account and earns this income. But if I don't report it, and if the Swiss bank does not report it, then it's straightforward to just evade uh, taxes. And of course, having bank accounts all over the world is perfectly legal, as long as you declare them and the income that they generate. If you don't report the income, it's totally illegal. So question, how do we know how big this is, how big the wealth uh, in offshore bank accounts is. Um, so the good news is that there's very good data uh, from the Swiss National Bank, which is a Swiss central bank. Uh, every month it, it publishes as public information the total value of, of the wealth that Swiss banks manage on behalf of foreigners. So that's about $2.4 trillion today. 
The bad news is that there's basically only Switzerland that publishes such information. Uh, even OECD countries don't. Uh, there's a lot of Latin American wealth uh, probably in the US. The US does not disclose how big it is. There's a lot of uh, wealth from all over the world uh, in, in, in the UK, but there's no statistics on this. And so if you want to have a sense of how big the world's offshore wealth is, you have to use indirect uh, methods. And so very briefly, the method that I use is the following. It starts with the fact that there is a um, statistical anomaly at the global level uh, in, in the global balance sheet. So if you take the planet as a whole, uh, total financial assets should be equal to uh, total liabilities. And the fact is that it's not the case, and that's something that statisticians from the IMF in particular have uh, observed for a very long time. It's quite, uh, it's quite surprising. There's a very big gap. Recorded financial assets always fall short of recorded liabilities. It's a bit like if our planet was in part owned by another planet that was investing on planet Earth. Of course, that's not the explanation. The explanation is that um, the wealth, the equities, the bonds, the mutual funds that people have on their Swiss accounts and other offshore accounts, they are well recorded as liabilities somewhere, but not as assets. So concretely, if I'm a U.S. resident, I have this Swiss account, I invest in, in German equities. German statisticians know about this. They know that there is some foreigner who's investing in Germany, but U.S. statisticians they don't know because they don't know in the first place that I have this U.S. account. And Swiss statisticians, well, they know everything, but that's none of their business. That's an asset for the U.S. on Germany, so it doesn't appear on the balance sheet of Switzerland. And so you can see that there's going to be a problem. There's going to be more liabilities and assets. And by using this type of inconsistencies, um, um, I estimate that there's about $8 trillion today in tax havens globally. Other data that can be used include uh, central bank data on one form of, of, of wealth, which is bank deposits. The good news is that uh, most of the world's central banks, including you know, the Central Bank of Panama, the Central Bank of Singapore, and so on, they collect this information. For bank deposits, they tell you, oh, okay, uh, Americans or Europeans or Russians have put X dollars in terms of bank deposits in our banks. And so that's what makes it possible to know how the world's offshore wealth is distributed across countries. Now, big problem, if you want to do that, you have eight, about 8 trillion, 7.6 trillion in 2014, 8.5 trillion in 2015 in offshore wealth at the global level. You want to allocate this wealth across countries, so you want to be able to say, okay, how big this is for Americans, for Europeans, and so on. You want to use this bank, central bank data, big problem, you see that most of the foreign wealth in tax havens, on paper, belongs to shell companies. Um, so, then, you know, who, how can you know who, who is behind these shell companies? Well, the good news is that there are more and more leaks that shed some light on this. And the Panama Papers, uh, in particular, are very useful because these are leaks from uh, one of the world's biggest uh, uh, creator of shell companies, you know, Mossack Fonseca. And so uh, this company created dozens of thousands of shell companies, and the leaks, you know, the names and the addresses of the shareholders 
of these shell companies are public, and so you can look at this and you can see that a big fraction of the shell companies uh, are created by you know, UK residents, by residents of European countries, Africa, and so on. And that's what makes it possible to uh, compute this type of statistics, so a breakdown of the world's offshore wealth by a country, or, or even more precisely today, thanks to the Panama Papers, by uh, 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 actual country rather than the big uh, uh, regions. And so 8% of the world's financial wealth, 7.6 trillion in 2014. Uh, as I said, it's a global average that masks a lot of heterogeneity, meaning that for the US, the share of financial wealth that's held abroad is, is about 4%, so it's less than the global average. For Europe, it's about 10%, more than the global average. Within Europe, you have a lot of uh, differences between countries like Greece or Portugal and countries like Norway or, or Denmark, where the fraction of wealth held offshore is uh, way smaller. But if you, if you look at developing countries, where the fractions are, are even way higher, 22% for Latin America, 30% for Africa, 50% for Russia. So even though the amounts, $2.6 trillion for Europe, $1.2 trillion for the US are bigger in developed countries in terms of the relative importance of offshore wealth, it's, it's, it's a major issue for developing countries and for development. No, it's, it's just not possible. Uh, to uh, build a modern tax system, to collect taxes, to finance public goods like education and health, if a third of your financial wealth is hidden you know, by the domestic elites in places like Switzerland or Luxembourg. So these tax havens, it is clear that uh, they bear very uh, important responsibility in uh, um, whatever is happening in developing, uh, in developing countries. In terms of tax revenue losses at the global level, the yearly revenue losses, by my estimate, are about $200 billion a year, uh, and so are quite uh, important quantitatively. So let me talk about this uh, new data at the microeconomic level. So until recently, all we knew was this, which is a bit abstract and very uh, aggregate and not very uh, uh, concrete. Now we have microeconomic data on who actually uh, owns this wealth. Um, that's interesting to uh, shed light on, 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 on an important question, which is, okay, who conducts tax evasion? So there's a widespread view that um, super-rich individuals do not really evade taxes. They do not conduct illegal tax evasion. That's a view that's very widespread in the U.S. in particular. And the, uh, the logic is, well, you know, when you're so rich, then you can simply avoid, you can simply legally, you know, uh, uh, do, do legal tax avoidance by paying specialized lawyers, and you don't have to break the law. And, you know, people who break the law, uh, according to this view, are poor people or, you know, not very rich people. And... At first sight, this is quite consistent with what randomized uh, audit data show. Randomized audit data is a tax authority that randomly audits a fraction of the population and that tries to see whether these people are evading taxes or not. That's, that's great. Uh, big problem with randomized audit data is that they don't capture 
tax evasion. Because typically, the tax authority is not going to audit all the banks from all over the world to find out if you have an account, in, an undeclared account in Hong Kong or Panama. And so they miss the, the, the precise form of tax evasion that's super concentrated at the top. It's super concentrated at the top. We can show it now in Scandinavia, where we have access to uh, uh, different types of data. One type of data that, that's showed on this graph is uh, uh, voluntary disclosures made by Norwegians to the tax authority after 2008. So after 2008, uh, G20 countries uh, tried to uh, uh, put pressure on tax havens, and so tax evaders, at least some of them, perceive an increase in the probability to be detected, and so some of them, they, they go spontaneously to the tax authority to say, well, I used to be evading taxes, but now I'm a bit afraid. Um, can I use the amnesty? It turns out that there's an amnesty in Norway since 1953. Nobody used it before because tax evaders thought there's no chance that I'm going to be caught. Starting in 2008, people start to, uh, to use it quite a lot. And so you can do one thing that's interesting, which is uh, just looking at where these individuals are in the wealth distribution. So look, for instance, at the first dot, P050. It's the bottom half of the wealth distribution. And the dot shows the number of people in that fraction of the population who have disclosed hiding wealth divided by the total number of people. So almost 0% of the bottom half of the distribution uh, had uh, Swiss bank accounts or bank accounts in Singapore. That's not very surprising. They don't have financial wealth in the first place. The bottom half of, of the distribution on aggregate has about zero wealth. Their debts are as high as their assets. What's more interesting is what happens when you zoom in to the very, very top. And the very steep gradient within the top one, within the top 0.1%. Uh, if you, if rather than putting, you know, uh, Percentiles, you, you, you put the dollar amounts. What this graph shows, it, it, it's just the same graph, but uh, uh, with actual dollar value. So this means that all the Norwegian households, among all the Norwegian households with more than $36 million in net wealth, 12% of them in recent years have, you know, candidly said, yes, we were evading taxes. And that's a proportion that, you know, three times higher than people with just a tiny bit less of wealth, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 30 million. And so uh, that uh, shows how concentrated tax evasion is at the very top of the wealth distribution. There's the very same graph, but using not uh, tax uh, voluntary disclosure data, but looking at, at the Norwegians who appear in the Panama Papers. That's something that anybody actually can do. It, you know, it took me one, one, just one morning. The names are public. The, the wealth in Norway is public. There's a website where you can type in a name and see there's a wealth tax in Norway and see, okay, that person has taxable wealth of X. And so you can do this very same graph, uh, how the propensity to appear in the Panama Papers, it doesn't mean that you evade taxes, it just means that you use tax havens for legitimate legal or illegal reasons. But that also very, steeply, uh, very, very sharply rises uh, with wealth. You can, you can be worried that people who voluntarily declare themselves, maybe they are only, you know, they are selected, as we would say. Maybe these are very specific people, not very representative of the whole population of tax evaders. 
The good news is that in Sweden, we have people who've been caught, not voluntarily, but they've been caught on you know, leaked CDs from uh, Switzerland, from Liechtenstein, and we can do the very same exercise. We can match these people who've been involuntarily caught to their wealth. We can rank them in the wealth distribution, and again, we see how concentrated uh, tax evasion is at the, very, at the very top and how widespread it is at the very top and at levels of wealth of $50 million or more. What's the implication of this? The implication is that if you only look at tax data to measure inequality, which is, which is fine, which is a good idea, in particular a better idea than just looking at survey data where you don't see rich people, if you look at tax data like Kuznets did in the 1950s, like Tony Atkinson uh, has done uh, uh, over the last decades, as Thomas Piketty, uh, uh, Emmanuel Says, and many others, and Camille uh, have done in recent years, here is what you see uh, for the distribution of wealth in Norway. Forget about the blue, uh, the blue curve. If you just look at tax data, you see that the top... Uh, 0.1% in Norway owns about 8% of total wealth in Norway. Now, if you reattribute the wealth that they, they don't declare, and that's the blue area, then you see they don't own 8%, they own about 12% of total wealth. And you might say, well, why do we care 8%, 12%, you know, and why do we care about the top 0.1%? These are not, you know, this is a very small fraction of the population. Well, you care for lots of reasons. You care for, from a purely scientific uh, perspective, because a very important question in the social sciences is, I guess, the long-run evolution of wealth concentration. And one, one key finding is that there's been a big decline over time in the concentration of wealth. That was the finding of Kuznets writing in the 50s, and the finding of Piketty and others. Uh, of course, the big problem, again, involved when you use tax data to measure long-run trends in wealth concentration is that you miss tax evasion. What these results suggest is that it's true that inequality, there's been a secular decline in wealth inequality, but it's a much less important decline than we used to think. So in particular, taking into account offshore wealth can erase about half of the historical decline in wealth concentration in Norway. Let, let me talk about the more normative uh, aspects. Uh, what can be done uh, to, to address uh, tax evasion? So first of all, there's been a lot of progress with the automatic exchange of bank information, as I said. Uh, the, the big problem that this faces is the following. What are the incentives of offshore bankers, offshore financial institutions, and tax haven countries themselves to cooperate, to truthfully report uh, on the income and the wealth of their clients. After all, these are the very same people who for decades have been selling ev tax evasion services to their clients, who've been, you know, some of them putting diamonds into toothpaste tubes to move wealth from the US to Switzerland. And so now we are asking these same people, please tell us the truth. Tell us really, you know, who are your clients, uh, what's their wealth, what's their income, and levy taxes on, their, on those accounts. It's, it's good to ask them, but you have to think about their incentives. If they can become and continue to be very rich by providing these uh, services, and if it's not 
uh, the probability to be caught is, is very low, uh, and if the costs, when they are caught, uh, are, are small, then unfortunately it's likely that tax evasion will continue. Not, not all uh, Swiss bankers are dishonest. Uh, some of them are. They've, they've been uh, uh, pleading guilty of, of uh, defrauding tax authorities. So how do you deal with this? What's very important is to have well-defined uh, sanctions against the tax havens, the financial institutions, and uh, uh, the bankers that facilitate uh, tax evasion. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, and the second thing is that it's not enough to only rely on uh, whatever information uh, tax havens are willing to provide. I think a concrete, uh, uh, a concrete embodiment of the notion of financial transparency, a concrete goal, if we want to do more, would be to have a financial registry. And so let me uh, talk briefly about the financial registry and how it would work. So the financial registry, as I said, would do for financial wealth what we already do for land and real estate. It would work uh, by uh, using the information that's contained in a number of very obscure financial institutions that nobody has heard about, uh, but that play an important role and which are known as central securities depositories. Each country has a central securities depository that basically keeps the book of who owns uh, all the equities and bonds that have been issued by uh, uh, domestic companies uh, and the government. So there's, the, there's information there. It's used just for uh, securities settlements, for the well-functioning of securities markets. It's not used for financial transparency. It's not used to enforce taxes. It's not used to fight money laundering. It's not used to fight the finance, financing of terrorism. But it could, OK? It could. Uh, one, one common uh, criticism uh, that's, that's made uh, to this proposal uh, for a financial registry is, oh, but this, this is some kind of big brother uh, pipe dream uh, that would violate uh, privacy. You know, it's a serious question. Uh, and, and my answer is, well, look at history. We've had land and real estate registries for a very long time. So in France, for instance, it was created in 1791. In 1791, almost all of people's wealth was land and real estate. So the registry, in effect, recorded almost all of people's wealth. All countries, every country has its uh, uh, real estate registry. These registries are public. I can go online. Uh, check who owns uh, a particular building in New York. I can type in any name online on a website of the municipality of New York and see if uh, anybody owns something in, uh, in Manhattan or in Brooklyn. Okay, these are public. They have been here for a very long time, and it's not clear that there's, they've been misused or there's been major abuse. What I just, the proposal just is simply to extend these registries, to adapt these registries to the reality of wealth in, in the 21st century, which is that it's not only land and real estate, it's also and increasingly so uh, financial uh, assets. So this is doable. 
because the information exists. There's a long track record, and uh, it could improve not only tax collection, but also uh, be good for all sorts of other uh, important issues like money laundering and fighting the financing of terrorism. Let me quickly, this is going to be much quicker, talk about multinational companies. It's, 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 it's a different topic in the sense that the mechanisms involved are different, but it's, it's of course uh, very related because it involves tax havens, and it's important because the tax revenue implications for governments are probably even bigger. Uh, the, the problem uh, that we are in today uh, is pretty simple. The way that we tax multinational companies, it was invented a century ago. In the 1920s, the League of Nations, the ancestor of the UN, asked four economists, how should we tax multinational companies, firms that operate in different countries? And these four economists, they really had no clue. They, they tried their best, and they came up with a plan that's based on three principles. And they said, okay, let's take one example. Let's, let's take a U.S. company that has a Brazilian subsidiary. The Brazilian subsidiary is producing coffee in Brazil. The U.S. parent is importing coffee from Brazil, distributing coffee to U.S. customers. So who should uh, levy the, the corporate tax, Brazil or the U.S.? Uh, so these four economies, they said, well, the country that, that must uh, tax this, this multinational firm um, is the country where the profits have been made. Fine. Why not? Problem. Where have the profits been made? Uh, they said, well, let's do uh, transfer pricing, which means let's do as if these two companies, which are part of the same group, which really are the same thing, but there's one subsidiary in Brazil, one in the U.S. Let's do as if they were totally independent and unrelated. Let's do as if the U.S. parent was importing coffee from Brazil at the market price for coffee, as if they were unrelated. And so at the end of the day, this generates some profits in Brazil, which are taxable in Brazil, some profits in the U.S. that are taxable in the U.S., and that's the end of it. Okay, why not? And then they said, oh, let's not create a big international organization to deal with these issues. Let's have countries sign bilateral tax treaties. Uh, and so countries have signed thousands of bilateral tax treaties. Now, all of this uh, was very boring to everybody for a very long time, and nobody cared. And even to me, it was extraordinarily boring. I hope it's not too boring for you. The reason why I'm, t I'm talking about this tonight is that today it matters a lot. For a long time it did not matter at all when foreign profits were negligible, only 5% of total US corporate profits, so we don't really care if you know, these principles do not function. Today, 35% of all the profits of US corporations are made abroad, and so these rules decided in 1920s, they apply to one-third of all U.S. corporate profits. For a country like the U.K., it's more than 50% of all corporate profits that are made abroad. So these rules, all of a sudden, they become very important. Big problem, they don't work. They are not uh, very meaningful. Problem number one, if you have thousands of bilateral tax treaties, uh, this creates tons of inconsistencies. Countries define a what is a corporation differently. They define profits differently. So by exploiting these inconsistencies, you can generate what is known as stateless income, profits that are generated nowhere. So that's the case for Apple, for instance. There's a very famous uh, 
uh, Senate meeting you know, between uh, Tim Cook and senators, you know, and they ask him, uh, where have you made these dozens of billions of dollars of profits? And he says, basically, nowhere, you know, not in the U.S., not in the Cayman Islands. That's stateless. Okay, well. Uh, so that's one problem. Problem number two, transfer pricing is not a good idea. It's not a good idea because you have billions of intra-group transactions every year, and it's just impossible for the tax authority to check that they are correctly priced. It's just hopeless. And bigger problem, it's a bad idea because a growing fraction of transactions are things that have no market price. Like when, when, uh, when you sell a logo, Apple's logo or Google's logo or algorithms or capital that's very specific to a firm, to your subsidiary in Bermuda, where's the market price of Google's uh, algorithm, algorithms when Google US sold it to Google Bermuda in 2003 before even being listed as a, as a US company. It's impossible to put a price on that. Okay, so it, it is a bad idea and source-based taxation is also a bad idea. So what are the costs of uh, uh, multinational uh, corporate tax avoidance? Starting again from this graph, 35% of all U.S. corporate profits are made abroad. Now I decompose it by country. Uh, what fraction is made in Ireland, in the Netherlands, in Luxembourg, and so on? And so you can see that 55% of all U.S. corporate profits today are made in a handful of tax haven countries displayed on this graph. Now, this is rising steadily over time, despite lots of policy changes in all, in all direction. 55% of 35%, it's about 20%, which means that about 20% today, that's what this graph shows, of all U.S. corporate profits, whether made by uh, multinational firms or firms that only have domestic activities, 20% are made in tax havens today, where the effective corporate tax rate is not exactly 0%, is about 2%. So the consequence of this is that the effective tax rate on U.S. corporate profits, and that's true for many other countries probably as well, has declined a lot in recent years. The nominal federal corporate income tax rate in the U.S. is 35%. Uh, but the rate effectively paid by U.S. companies today is about 20%. It used to be close to 35% 30 years ago, and now it has declined to about 20%. And most of this decline owes to this, the growing shifting of profits to zero-tax countries. So let me conclude, that's the last slide, with uh, some hope. So just like for personal tax evasion, I think there are uh, concrete solutions to this problem, and in particular for the corporate tax uh, issue, uh, well, it's just uh, getting rid of these uh, 1920s uh, principles, and in particular of arm's length pricing, and doing something that's, again, when I first saw that formula or formulary apportionment, I, I almost you know, went to bed directly. This sounds so boring, but this is so important. How do you tax a company like Google or Apple? Let's take Apple again uh, today. A very simple way to tax Apple today would be to do the following thing. We know the global profits of, of Apple. I don't, I don't remember the figure exactly, but let's say $40 billion. That's known. That can't be manipulated. Question is how you allocate those profits to each country. 
And one simple way is to allocate them proportionally to where sales are made. So if Apple has made 10% of its sales in the US, then 10% of its global consolidated profits, so $4 billion, would be taxable in the US. And then whatever rate the US has applies to these $4 billion. That's what formulary apportionment based on sales means. That's how state corporate taxes work in the US. You know that each state, like most, most states like California, New Jersey, have their own state tax, and that's how it works. Uh, the European Union has been discussing this for 25 years, I don't know, and is still discussing this. Everybody understands that that's the way to go, that, that works in the US, that's been working for decades, and that's uh, how we should be doing things uh, uh, in the EU, uh, but it's not how it works. Uh, the good news is that you don't have to wait for, for a big global agreement. Any country can do it unilaterally in the EU, outside the EU, the UK tomorrow could say, that's how we are going to tax Apple. If they make 10% of their sales in the UK, 4 billion is taxable in the UK. And so there is an actual solution to this problem because today you can move profits to Bermuda very easily, but you can't move your customers to Bermuda. Your customers, they are in the UK, they are in the US. And so formula apportionment would put an end to multinational corporate tax avoidance. Thank you very much. You can uh, take a seat now. Uh, what we're going to do for the next, uh, let's say, 15, 15 minutes, we're going to do a, a Q&A. Uh, the rules of the game. Uh, so if you agree, I think the best is maybe that we take a round of two, three questions. Uh, may I kindly invite you to be as concise uh, as possible when you're uh, making your, your questions. There should be microphones uh, yeah, so upstairs and uh, downstairs as well. Okay, so yeah, let's, uh, let's go. Yes, please. Thank you. Um, I've got two questions that I'd like to ask. The first question is with regards to the slide that you showed that had the 8% um, of the financial wealth held in offshore um, accounts. Um, in, in that slide, it showed that the Gulf, Gulf countries, um, the share of financial wealth held in offshore accounts is about uh, 57%. And then you said the tax revenue loss in billions was zero. And I wondered why that was. And then the second question is, um, with regards to the tax havens themselves, so what is it that um, places like Panama as a state or, or country, how do they benefit? What's, what's in it for them to have these companies set up their shell companies there if they're not going to pay taxes to them either? Anybody else? Yeah. Um, I, I don't hear very well, so you'll excuse me if I didn't catch the points. Um, in 2008, the New Internationalists published a map of the world with about 121 tax havens listed. Um, 
The lawyer once noted about 200 tax jurisdictions and Chuka Amuna, the Labour MP, noted 200,000 bank subsidiaries facilitating tax haven work. Um, and I also noticed in passing that the city corporation is immune from corporation tax and indeed the Freedom of Information Act at least since 1067. And I also believe the New Statesman noted that one third of tax havens were in the Commonwealth. Do you have any comment on that? Yes, maybe second row. Uh, thank you very much for the talk. The first question was on the registry and what sort of traction is that idea getting in the international community? Is, uh, is there any movement there? And that would also require the tax evasion countries, the Panamas, to also be involved, I'm assuming, and, and like you mentioned, that's, a, that's an issue. The second quick question is, uh, in addition to uh, these countries losing significant tax revenue, uh, have you seen any other MPO work on what the effect on the countries is? Uh, if, if, if you have anything to add on that. Thank you. Thanks. So I think we're going to let uh, Gabriel answer these uh, extremely interesting questions. Well, yes, these are, these are very, good, uh, very good questions. So for Gulf countries, why do they have so much wealth offshore and yet the revenue loss is zero? It's, it's because those countries don't uh, tax uh, wealth. There's no tax on, on, on dividends, on interest, on capital gains. Um, they, they use tax havens a lot because, um, well, for a variety of reasons, you know, a lot of it is, is, is sovereign wealth, and so it's, it's, it's a way to preserve your, your wealth from um, a political revolution uh, in particular. Um, uh, but uh, since these uh, very same people who own so much uh, uh, wealth, also are you know, the absolute rulers of the country, they've chosen to not tax themselves, and so the tax rate is 0%. Um, how do tax havens benefit uh, from uh, the services that they offer? So for, for shell companies, um, typically there's a small fee uh, on the incorporation of a, of a shell company. So for the British Virgin Islands, for instance, most of government revenue do not derive from taxes, but from fees uh, on the uh, incorporation of shell companies. And so that's how they benefit directly. Uh, so there are direct monetary benefits. There are, there are other benefits, like uh, pretty good benefits. You know, if you think of a country like Luxembourg, for instance, a country of 500,000 inhabitants, um, uh, it has an extraordinary influence in uh, European uh, affairs. You know, several uh, uh, presidents of the European Commission that uh, 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 came uh, from Luxembourg, including the current one, and that's probably uh, related to the outsized role that uh, this country plays in uh, world uh, financial markets, which itself is related to uh, the type of uh, secrecy services that they offer to individuals and corporations. And so if you want these benefits, uh, the political elite of those uh, tax havens. Uh, of course, uh, many uh, uh, tax havens are associated in a way or another 
uh, to the UK. Uh, and so that's, that's, uh, that includes you know, the, the Channel Islands, uh, Guernsey, Jersey, the Isle of Man. This includes a number of Caribbean uh, tax havens. So if you, if you aggregate all of these tax havens, the, uh, uh, the UK as a whole is probably one of the biggest, if, if, if not the biggest, uh, tax haven. That's a, that's a question that's going to uh, become increasingly uh, important and salient, I think, in the aftermath of, uh, of, of the Brexit, because uh, uh, the, the negotiations between the EU and the UK, uh, you know, if, 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 if the UK, you know, plays the, the, the tax haven card and tries to, to, to attract activity and businesses by uh, cutting regulations and taxes and, and uh, uh, selling uh, uh, opacity, financial opacity services, uh, then uh, the EU, I think, would be in a, in a strong position to retaliate. One thing that I do in the book is to try to compute the type of uh, uh, sanctions that, that should be applied uh, to, uh, to tax havens to uh, uh, encourage them not to be tax havens. And in the case of the UN, of course, this, the sanctions depend on the benefits that tax havens derive from uh, uh, being tax havens and on the costs that they impose to other countries. And the UK, if we, when you include all these uh, uh, crown dependencies, uh, derives important benefits and, uh, uh, and the costs to other European countries are pretty big. Uh, the, the corporate tax in the UK, to take just one example, is, is uh, going to be uh, reduced to 17%. Uh, 17% is half the rate of the US, is half the rate of uh, uh, France. It's just the lowest rate in any uh, developed, big developed economy. The costs of this for other countries, uh, EU countries in particular, are potentially very big. Uh, in terms of the registry, uh, does it have any political traction? Mm, uh, not yet, <laughs> uh, uh, but I'm, I'm, uh, you know, it's 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 a proposal for the the medium or the or the long run. Uh, it, it is starting to to receive some uh, uh, attention. Um, uh, I think, in, in particular, following the Panama Papers, you know, it, it, it is increasingly uh, being discussed in what is right now relatively uh, uh, specialized policy uh, circles. Uh, but the demand for financial transparency is so important. That's, that's, I think, one of the main lessons of the Panama Papers. You know, you see people from all over the world reacting very strongly to the uh, revelations, to the leaks. The demand is so strong that I, I am actually very optimistic that this will uh, become reality in a form or another. Uh, and of course, the sooner, the, the better. Um, um, what are the effects on uh, um, countries like the US or Germany or France or, or, of tax havens, how, how, how detrimental are they to, uh, to other economies beyond uh, the, the pure tax revenue losses? Well, you know, I think it's, uh, tax havens are an important uh, uh, factor that exacerbates inequality. Uh, an important force behind the rise of income and wealth inequality. Because as we've seen, the use of tax havens, whether legal or illegal, is very, very concentrated at the very top end, which means that 
they make it possible to reduce taxes at the top for a very small fraction of the population, in particular taxes on capital. And in the long run, what determines the degree of, of wealth inequality in particular, a key determinant is the, the rate of tax on, on capital. You know, it's the famous R uh, greater than G of uh, Piketty. You know, the R is the net of tax rate of return to capital. So if you tax capital a lot, R falls, and so the gap between R and G falls, and so wealth inequality falls. Uh, if tax havens make it very easy for a very small fraction of the population to have high after-tax rates of return to capital, then uh, they exacerbate potentially uh, considerably the uh, long-run concentration of wealth. Excellent. Let's uh, take a second round. So, yeah. Uh, uh, Eric Schmidt, uh, the chairman of Google, uh, made a visit to Britain a couple of years ago and made a public statement that uh, he was actually obliged to seek out the uh, offshore and the least tax cost um, structure. Otherwise, he would be sued. Uh, by his shareholders, and I was wondering to what extent the actual very uh, the legal nature of the joint stock company, which has um, obviously served us very well since it was invented about two or three centuries ago, whether that was actually now part of the uh, problem. I do appreciate you're an economist and uh, not a not an ethicist or indeed a lawyer. Thanks. Yes. What percentage of um, London residential properties held offshore and what effect does this have on inequality? Thank you. Great. Maybe a, a last one uh, in the back. Yes. Could you say a word about the, the variance between the countries in their attitude to uh, whistleblowers? Um, say comparing the, the U.S. and European countries to Singapore. Um, and also, the, could you explain, the, <clears throat> there's a U.S. law which actually encourages whistleblowing to such an extent that the incentive involves a percentage of the uh, amount that the U.S. government can actually acquire. There's one case last year where someone was awarded over $100 million dollars after serving a prison term for revealing the information. Good. Maybe let's, uh, let's go through these ones, and I think we'll have time to do a last round. Sure. So thank you for these, uh, for these questions. I think, the, yes, the answer that, that Eric Schmidt gave when he said, I have to use tax havens, otherwise I would be doing something wrong towards the shareholders, is, is very uh, uh, typical of um, a, a big uh, uh, cultural and economic change that has taken place since the 1970s, 1980s. So today, uh, CEOs view it as their uh, they, they view it as their duty to, to maximize uh, the value of their firm for shareholders. So their only goal, and they think that that's the, the right way to do things, is to maximize shareholder value. Okay? And if you want to maximize only shareholder value, of course, it makes sense to dodge taxes as much as you can. 
Now, what's important to realize is that it's, it's, it's of course, not always been like that. Uh, and it's not like that in, 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 in most countries. So first of all, this is a very specific uh, Anglo-Saxon phenomenon uh, in, in other countries like Germany. The view that CEOs only have a duty to shareholders is just not as widespread. But uh, even in the US and even in the UK, um, uh, before 1980s, CEO thought that they had a, a duty not only to shareholders, but also a fiduciary duty to uh, um, uh, workers, towards their customers, towards society as a whole. And, uh, and, and that's the reason why they could have done all this tax dodging in the 70s, but they did not. And one of the reasons why this has increased so much since the 1980s is this big change in the way that people, that CEOs and corporate executives uh, view their mission. Uh, so that's, that's a very important development. Uh, regarding the, the uh, London properties that are held offshore, it, there's been a very interesting investigation by the FT, I think a couple of years ago, that uh, looked at the land registry data, which are not totally public in the UK. I mean, they are public, but you have to pay a fee to access them, and that found that a great fraction of the prime real estate in central London, I don't remember the exact figure, but, but I, I believe more than the majority, was owned uh, via shell companies in the BVI and Panama and so on. So it's, it's not only people don't use only uh, tax havens to only uh, hide financial assets, they use it to, uh, to uh, uh, hide their ownership of real estate. That's something that I don't take into account in my estimates. Only 8% of the world's financial wealth, 8 trillion, it only relates to financial assets. That's a big limitation. Uh, but unfortunately, there's not enough data to uh, uh, have a comprehensive view of offshore uh, uh, real estate. And, and regarding the attitudes towards whistleblowers, it's true that the U.S. attitude is very ambiguous. And at the same time, so th this uh, whistleblower who revealed the wrongdoings at, at UBS indeed was first jailed and then awarded more than 100 million uh, U.S. dollars. Uh, there's, there's clearly not enough protection uh, for whistleblowers, uh, especially uh, in Europe, even less than in the U.S. Um, on the other hand, it's, uh, so some people sometimes have the feeling that, well, uh, I think it's important to, to better, it's critical to better protect whistleblowers, but I think it's, it's not enough. It's, it's an illusion to believe that uh, uh, we will fix the problems of tax havens and tax evasion simply thanks to whistleblowers. I think they play a very important role, but uh, we have to uh, conduct more, uh, you know, other policies that involve, you know, the financial registry, sanctions for non-compliant tax havens. It's not enough to rely on whistleblowers. Okay, so let's maybe take one or two final questions. Yes? In the back. Up there, is there? Yeah? And after. Uh, does a financial transaction tax have any role to play in controlling the activities of tax havens? Thank you. Um, first, thank you for the presentation. And... Um, 
I guess it would be interesting to have your uh, your opinion kind of on uh, the Brexit from a tax evasion point of view. Will it encourage it or discourage it? Thanks. Um, so very, very good question. So the financial transaction tax... Um, could be useful in terms of creating information on um, the exact number of transactions that uh, um, happen, in particular in some more obscure markets like derivative markets, which are not very well regulated and not very well known. So a tax is, is, is useful to the extent it creates some information, among other things, and so from that perspective it could be useful. On the other hand, some, some people think that the, the financial transaction tax is, 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 has a very important role to play to, to limit inequalities, for instance, and I'm not so sure. I mean, it's not a very direct way. It's a very indirect way to, to uh, address uh, the problem of inequality. If you want to reduce wealth inequality, the most direct way is to tax wealth. Um, or to use some economic terms, you know, what's the incidence of the financial transaction tax? Is something that's very unclear? Is it, very a is it a very progressive tax or not? So it could be a good idea, but it's clearly uh, not central in, uh, uh, for any serious attempt at uh, creating more transparency and reducing wealth inequality. And uh, regarding the Brexit... Um, well, my view is that there's a real risk that well, the, the cost of the Brexit uh, could be pretty high and probably will ver nobody knows, but might, might be unfortunately very uh, significant for the UK. When temptation, when you're a small country, the UK is a small country, France is a small country, all countries increasingly are small countries, the temptation is, is always, unfortunately, for all countries, not only for the UK, to, uh, to become a tax haven of some sort that could be a regulatory haven, a fiscal haven for multinational companies, a tax haven for Russian oligarchs, for uh, uh, French uh, taxpayers. Uh, it's tempting because at least in the short run it can generate some activity, uh, it can generate some tax and non-tax uh, revenue, and so the whole uh, question, the big challenge, is how is the European Union going to respond to that? First of all, is the UK going to engage in this? I think it is on this trend, in particular the fact that it's, it's moving towards 17% of corporate income tax is a clear sign of this. Is this trend first going to accelerate? Is the city going to become the ultimate tax haven? I think the incentives for the UK in the short run are unfortunately too high. But of course, it all depends on what's going to be the reaction of uh, the EU. The EU can change the incentives of the UK by saying, oh, if you do that, we'll impose uh, trade tariffs of X, uh, depending on the cost that you're imposing to us. And so this question of sanctions, of how to discourage countries, from becoming tax havens, I think is going to be just a central question uh, in, the, in the future. Excellent. So I think we're going to stop here. Uh, I want to, of course, thank you for uh, attending this, this lecture. I want to remind you that uh, there is a book sale uh, of Gabriel's book outside. 
and that Gabriel is going to stay on stage uh, to sign uh, the book. And I wanted to uh, finish by thanking Gabriel for uh, this, well, very dark, but at the same time super uh, enlightening picture of the role of tax evasion and its consequences. Thank you.